Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Today, I'm interviewing Jim Tincher, a nationally recognized customer experience expert known for empowering companies to drive customer-focused change, improve loyalty, and boost revenue. He's the author of How Hard Is It To Be Your Customer? And we dive deep into this question, as well as talk about important CX practices, such as journey mapping. We discuss the right and the wrong ways to do it so that you can succeed in a competitive marketplace. Before we get started, I have one request. Please share this episode with others. Subscribe to my podcast on your favorite channels and leave me a review. It would mean a lot. Now, let's get started with the show. Hello, Jim Tincher. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Thanks, Stacey. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here too, because you are always cooking up a storm. So many different projects. It's hard to keep track. And well, let's dive into first, who are you? What do you do professionally? Tell my audience. Sure. Jim Tincher. I am the founder and mapper-in-chief at Heart of the Customer. We're a customer experience consultancy, probably best known for journey mapping. It's what our book was on. And really helping taking a little bit of a uh, different approach towards improving customer experience. Why? Why do you do this? What's your passion? That is so hard. I saw that question, like, oh, that's hard. My first job out of college, I was working for a laser printer manufacturer. And when I was going on vacation to visit my then girlfriend, now wife, I wanted to visit a customer. And they're like, well, why do you want to do that? Go on vacation. So I guess it's just always been there. But I really got the passion 10 years ago when I came from Best Buy to a large health insurance organization. And uh, we were focused on health savings accounts. And I discovered that nobody in marketing or product development had ever met a client. Uh, Nobody's talking to customers. A client would be a business. Customers would be the end consumers. There was no research to understand them, no measurement, nothing. And when I asked why, I was told, well, there's no budget for visiting customers. We have customers in town. I'll pay the mileage myself to go across town and visit a customer. It just wasn't something they thought about. When I talked about creating uh, products around the customer, the feedback I got was, well, we're customers. We know what customers want because we're customers. I don't think most of our customers spend eight to 10 hours a day thinking about health savings accounts. I I really don't. And, you know, they don't think the same things we do. So just, I guess it was just, I've always had the bug. But it really, I think you really discover your passion when you go somewhere that doesn't practice that. And that was really the day I I got passionate about customer experience. I like that story. What's one thing that most people don't know about you? Before we get into the meat of CX, I want to know you. Well, it's not customer experience related, but when I was 21, I was on a leave of absence from college uh, at home. I worked for Winnebago Motorhomes. My dad designed Winnebago's. And I decided to run for mayor. So I was up against uh, the incumbent was in city politics since before I was born. You can probably guess the outcome because I'm not the mayor of Four City, Iowa. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was a uh, learning experience when I recognized just how much I didn't know. 
And that was reinforced when I had a meeting with the CEO and founder of Winnebago who informed me that I was ignorant. It wasn't my fault. I was young. I was just ignorant and couldn't do anything about it. So that was a, quite an experience for me. Hmm. So talking about experience, what does customer experience mean to you? Because there's a lot of different definitions based on who I talk to. What's your version? What does it mean? It's a business discipline. And as a business discipline, it has to result in a better business, not defined as a survey score, uh, not defined as a promoter who says they will talk to others about you, but defined by behaviors, by creating experiences so good that customers will want to stay with you longer, will want to buy more from you, and will want to actively advocate on your behalf. That's what customer experience is about, is creating those outcomes. Mm. So let's go into what you write and speak a lot about, how hard it is to be your customer. What is that about? Well, and it's, it's old thinking, actually. It is important to think about how hard is it to be your customer. And that's, that's important for us to really understand their perspective about how many hoops you put up there. But as I've been doing more and more work, I've discovered that that's actually not the most important question. It's a little bit controversial since that's the name of my book. But, um, you know, a lot of us measure the customer experience through a combination of effectiveness, ease, and emotion. And that, of course, is all about ease. But now what I've discovered doing more and more research is that that's now what most matters for loyalty. We talk about those outcomes I mentioned earlier, buying more, staying longer, advocating. You don't earn those by being simpler to work with. Your electricity... Pretty simple to work with electrical company. You just plug things in, they work, and you get a bill. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm not actively advocating for my electrical company. <laughs> if I had a choice, I might go somewhere else. We don't in Minnesota. Loyalty happens when you create an emotional connection. When you find the emotional North Star for your brand, you measure it and you make that happen. And so even though that was my thinking four years ago when we first started writing the book, I've come a long way and recognized that, yes, it's important to be easy to work with, but that's not how you earn loyalty. Now, how emotionally effective is your experience isn't quite as pithy of a title, but that's really more of my thinking is these days. I agree about the electric company. I used to work for telecom, uh, AT&T, when I first started my career back when. And at that time, I mean, 800 numbers were just becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember that dial tone, you, you, it's t still today, I mean, you, you take that for granted. We always did take that for granted. So you're right. If you don't have a dial tone or the call doesn't patch through to where you're trying to get to, then that's not okay. But if it does work, well, is that a good customer experience or do we only notice when it doesn't work? Right. And, and it is possible to create more of a connection, even in utilities. Um, there's Hydro-Quebec won the Customer Experience Awards about a year ago, a North American Customer Centricity Awards for creating great experiences with customers and creating an emotional connection. It's not common, but it is possible. Yes. So talk about ways that people can actually do it right. 
what can they do if they're a small company or they're a big company? I mean, there's, they, let's assume there's not a big budget, right? But mm-hmm. they want to be customer centric. So how do you make it easy for your brand? What's some of the tactics that you advise people? Well, I start with the ad card change model. And that is if you want to drive a change, such as being more customer centric, your employees in this case have to be aware of the need to change. They have to desire to change. They have to know what to change. They have to be able to change and it has to be continually reinforced. And when we did interviews with over 100 people involved in the customer experience, they really focused on the uh, two A's and the K. We need to be more customer experience uh, more customer-centric because has all these outcomes. Here's how to do it. And now here's some training to help you get there. And they don't take the time to build desire or to reinforce it with your leadership. And those are the two things to think about. And so, you know, Marlon Simer, friend of mine, great customer experience leader. She focuses on creating 30 to 90 second videos of customers sharing when they're doing well. She's at Prime Therapeutics, a pharmacy benefit program. And when they're maybe falling down a little bit. And so those videos help people to understand what makes a difference. Um, Sam Wegman is with Univar. They're a distributor. Um, They distribute chemicals. So if you're a smaller company, instead of going right to Dow, for example, you would work with Univar, who would represent Dow and others. And she used to work in accounts payable. And she thought she had no connection to the customer experience until she moved to customer service and found out there were customers not getting their products because the newer accounts payable person wasn't paying in time. Therefore, they get the products to pay. And so she focuses on connecting everybody in the organization with the customer experience, helping them understand how they impact customers, and then using that to create desire by showing the link, then bringing in the training to be able to do it, but focusing on that desire. I mentioned Hydro-Quebec earlier. They um, took their CFO and they brought their CFO to the contact center. And they, they had her listening on calls, but also to talk to the customers. To actually spend, she wouldn't answer the question, but she would then talk afterwards about what was your experience like and, and learn more about what it's like to work with them. And they made a big deal out of it about the CFO coming to the contact center. So then all the other executives want to do the same thing. They wanted their turn to be in the contact center. And so they made, they create desire to come there and learn more about customers. Awareness, knowledge, ability are all important. But creating desire, hey, it's the cool thing to think about customers. And then having executives reinforce how important it is, that's how you get people focused. Mm. So what has been, from your experience, which brands are doing it right? Well, I mentioned a few of them. You know, it's, we do a lot of work with business-to-business brands and B2B2C, which are a little bit harder for people to internalize because they, they don't see them every day. Um, you know, I love going back to the example of Hydro-Quebec. Amazon makes their executives take calls. That's a whole level beyond. You know, they give them coaching and support so that they're not just floundering, but to understand how hard that role is. And that role is really hard. You know, there's the usual suspects, but I like to go different places. And more of the B2B, because those are the unsung heroes. And one example I really enjoy is um, Jen Zamora at Dow. Now, Jen, my guess is most people here are not Dow customers. They measure 
effectiveness, ease, and enjoyability. When I first met Jen, she told me, and we were working on the complaints journey with her. She said, my goal is to create a complaints journey that's enjoyable. And I stopped. I said, I think I heard you wrong, Jen. Uh, easy? No, effective? No, no, I want to create a complaints journey that's enjoyable. Most of us aren't aiming for that high of a bar, but she did, and they did it. They completely changed the complaints process, streamlined it to make it more effective, easier, but also as enjoyable as a chemical ordering complaints process can be. Uh, she aimed higher. Uh, Roxy Strominger, she's with the um, Ultimate Cronus Group. Uh, she focused on let's create confidence. And so first thing she did when she came in is said, let's understand the emotions that matter. All of us understand the importance of emotions. But she said, we need to take another level. Let's measure it. She identified four positive and four negative emotions and then added those to her surveys. And so they're now tracking those four positive and four negative emotions. And she works across the organization to look at how do we improve, for example, confidence, which is their emotional North Star. How do we reduce frustration? And so they are actively tracking that as they do the experience. Mm. What is a journey map, Jim? How do you define that? Well, the map itself is a visualization of your customer's experience with you. It could be the end-to-end -end experience. It could be a sub-journey. Onboarding, for example, is often the most important sub-journey, uh, getting support. The map itself is that visualization. And it's critical to make it highly visual because that's what helps the lead create that desire we talked about earlier. But the, while people buy the map from us, and that's a key part in terms of the sales process, what they're really getting is not the map, but the map ping. And that's what's most critical. Last week, I was on a, a podcast, sorry, I was on a um, webinar with the CXPA and Quadiant. And we asked participants to say, to chat, when they think of journey mapping, what do they think of? And one common one was a hot conference room. Completely the wrong way to think about journey mapping. Journey mapping does not happen in a conference room. Journey mapping happens at your customer's site while you're out there visiting them. Now, granted, we're still coming out of COVID, so maybe it's over Zoom instead. But you don't create a customer journey map in a conference room with employees. You create a customer journey map by being out there talking to your customers firsthand. And going back to I mentioned earlier, Jen working on her complaints journey, we visited customers all throughout the world, France, China, uh, Brazil, as well as in the United States. It's talking to customers firsthand, a qualitative discussion and then bringing it back and then creating the visualization based on what you learn. Now, also involving your employees then, not on creating the map, but hearing what's happening, bringing them with you when you do the interviews, and then having them help to think through the implications of the map. We find the moments of truth. What do we do about it? So it does involve employees, but not to create the map, but to create the ideas that come out of the map. One of the, I agree with you, but one of the things I also believe is that you can use the map as a way to break silos. Oh yeah, and right, and 
that's I found the bringing finance to the table, bringing marketing to the table, bringing all those different functions to design the map or what we what internal thinks it could be or map it out what it is and then obviously you have to validate with real customers. But again, do you agree that is a tool, a vehicle to bring people together? I mostly agree. Let me let me go specifically. I absolutely agree it's important to bring everybody together to tell you what they think the map is. We call it a hypothesis map. And we involve different folks from out the organization to tell us what they think the journey is like. And your point earlier, we did a survey a number of years ago. We found that 70% of the time, customer experience people do not involve IT in journey mapping. I've never yet, in eight years now, it'll be eight years on Thursday, I've never run a journey mapping initiative that doesn't have IT implications. 93% of the time, they don't involve HR. Yet every journey mapping initiative involves culture. So that's what we found is the most predictive of success was having a broad cross-functional team. And so in that, I absolutely agree with you. Where I get hung up is in the word validate. Because there is a process some use that feels good, which is let's take our learnings, let's take the map we create, and let's show it to customers and see where we're right and where we're wrong. If your goals feel good about yourself, fabulous process. But you're anchoring the customer. You're giving them something to react to, and as a result, they will react to what you give them. Mm. And if I look at an early project we did, this is a case study in our book. It involved how banks buy software. Now, it was based off some research many may know about the, from the CEB, now part of Gartner, that 57% of the business-to-business sales process happens before a sales rep is contacted. And so what the CEB talked about is that's all digital. Customers come to your website. That's why you need a great digital presence. And so we did that hypothesis mapping you talked about. We brought in folks from the programming team, from IT, from marketing, from sales, to tell us what they thought the journey was. And it looked like what you expect. It was about going to the website. It was downloading forms. It was looking at case studies, all those things. So we went out and we talked to bankers. We talked to those who either just had purchased or were in the process of purchasing. And we asked them about their journey. I remember one guy talked to Frank. And Frank told me, yeah, all that stuff, I do that. I go to the website. I go download. I do all that stuff. But I don't do that for everybody because they all say that the software works. They all say they're compliant. They all say they're secure. They all say, so. I don't believe any of it. I don't care. What I do is I call another banker. I talk to a buddy of mine in Chicago. I met at a conference and I ask him, who do you use? I call Marge down in Florida, say, who do you use? I can't trust any of those software companies. I trust other bankers. And so I call them. I find out who they use. And once I got my list down, then I do all those other things. And so our finding was that it's, it's not banks who are buying software. It's bankers. Banks do all that stuff. They do reference checks, all those other things. But a banker only calls somebody he trusts. Had I shown Frank our client's map, he would have said, oh, yeah, I do all that. And I'd agree, fiddle those few things. He never would have gone back 
those things he does before the exodus bots on the map. He would have reacted to what I put in front of him, which is why mm -hmm. you do not validate your journey map. You do that process as part of change management. Use that to help develop your discussion guide. And then you throw the map away. You go out and talk to customers. You find their experience. Then you take it out of the trash and compare the two. But you never show customers your hypothesis map because you're anchoring them and you will get polluted results. Hmm. When you talk about maps, now there are people behind the maps who have to deliver on the experience. And what's your view on motivation? How do you get employees? What are the different ways you can get employees to deliver excellence? I like to say deliver even when the boss isn't looking. Right. What, what have you seen that's, in your opinion, great tactics and poor choices? Well, it comes back to emotions. Everything does. We all make emotional decisions first then validate or come up with rational reasons afterwards. So when you're looking at your employees, you look at what motivates them. And often, nobody wakes up and says, I want to create a bad experience. That's not how people think. So we need to figure out how do we enable them and how do we inspire them to create great experiences. And there are a couple of ways to do that. One, as I mentioned earlier, is bringing the customer to life. Whether that's through videos, whether that's through actual personal connections, bring it there. And the second part is giving feedback on how we're doing. And the best way to do that, back to what we were talking about earlier, is through showing emotions in the journey and how we're doing. The Veterans Administration, their emotional North Star is trust. They measure trust, they report on it publicly, and they inform all their locations about how that location is doing against trust. It ties right to their mission and it inspires the staff on how do we go even better at creating trust in our veterans. So it's a combination of identifying the emotions you need, identifying the motivations for employees, obviously making it easier to do their work, but then also giving constant feedback on how we're doing against, in this case, the outcome we're trying to create, which is trust in our veterans. A lot of companies, salespeople especially, are driven because of their bonus because yep. of the metrics. It's just a fact. So where does CX come into that? Does it get tied or is that not a good example or a good practice, I should say? Because I've, I've, it's a great debate. I've heard many different sides. What's your view? Well, first of all, I have not found any thought leaders who recommend tying bonuses to a high-level CX score. However, almost every client we work with does it. It's just hmm. universal. There's a huge disconnect between the two. And I got really interested in this. I started a debate on LinkedIn, but it didn't work the way I expected. I asked, why is there the disconnect? Instead, everybody said, here is my belief of what we should do. Okay, I'm marginally interested in that. I really want to know, why is there such a disconnect? And I think it's because other companies do it. There's a social proof aspect to it. But I have seen zero evidence that it actually improves the organization's outcomes. And um, very interesting, if you are, are incenting based on 
net promoter score, basic customer satisfaction score. There are two assumptions here. The first is that your staff knows how to create better customer satisfaction. I've not found that to be often true. Often the customer experience team, the market research team is, has the drivers of experience. They can say what most leads to that. But most folks you talk to don't have that knowledge. It's not been communicated effectively. That's solvable though. But the first assumption is that they know how to fix it. What I found is not often true. The second assumption is that they won't do it if you don't pay for it. I definitely challenge that. That is lazy leadership. Now, there's also a third assumption built in, which is that they won't do something else, possibly worse, that's more effective at driving the score than solving the problem. And that's where, and I don't like using the used car salesperson, although, you know, we see that. When I had my car into the insurance company, um, Abra Auto literally gave me a filled out survey so I would know how to fill it out when I got mine. Okay, yes, we have that. But it's more pervasive than that. We find in a lot of business-to-business organizations that certain customers get offered the survey and certain other ones don't. Or others get followed up and reminded more often to answer the survey than others. That uh, salespeople will give certain deals to customers if a survey is coming up to remind them that they're on their side. Um, and we have heard in the business-to-business context as well that I need to get a 9 or a 10. That's my passing grade. And so you find gaming, even though it's less obvious than on the car dealership lot, we find gaming in business-to-business as well. And that third assumption is one most people don't think about, about what activities am I driving through this? Well, we are near the end That went way too fast because I have many more questions. But with that said, I have two last ones for you, which is if I had tons of CEOs, leaders, entrepreneur owners of businesses, what's the one advice, one tip you have for them today? Customers are humans and humans make emotional decisions first and rationalize them afterwards, not just to you, but to themselves. If you want to figure out the biggest driver of your success is to understand what emotions am I creating and what emotions should I create? Measure it and manage it. Well said. And my last question, going back to younger Jim, who you talked about before. So imagine 20-year-old Jim, if you could go talk to him based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what's the one advice you'd say to yourself? Learn finance. When I failed at a customer experience job, it's because I didn't bring in the financial aspects. I just said customers are frustrated. If I had learned the finance and said, those customers who are frustrated have a 20% higher attrition rate, not exactly deep finance, I'd have been way more successful. I might still be in that job. If I give my advice 20 years ago, it would be learn how finance works and incorporate that into your thinking. That, I love that advice. No one said that before. So thank <laughs> you for, for sharing something different and great wisdom. Where can people find you? I will have it in my show notes, but I know that people will want to know where to reach you. Well, the most common way is LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, posting most days, but you can also email me at jim at heartofthecustomer.com. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you for so much wisdom, research, intelligence, best practices, case studies. I mean, you are the go-to guy and I'm very appreciative to have you on my show. So thank you. Thank you, Stacey. I, I've been looking forward to today. This is all, I always enjoy talking to you. I, I learn a lot as well. It's great to bounce off ideas. So again, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.